Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of John. We've been going through the book of John, getting to know God one chapter, one verse at a time. It wouldn't say it's totally expository. Uh, it's more kind of, if it was totally expository, we, would, we wouldn't probably be in chapter two. But we're just kind of taking kind of general overview looks at some main points in the chapter. So in chapter 15, of course, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's with his disciples. He's downloading, kind of like the matrix. He's just downloading to them all of this supernatural insight because he's, the, he's God that became flesh and he was dwelling amongst them. And he's saying, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again. And then I'm going to put my life in you. And you're going to, everything that he knows, you'll be able to know and you'll have access uh, to the Father. And then he says, if you abide in me, in verse 7 of John 15, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. In this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. And if you remember the verses 1 through 6 of John 15, Jesus is using agriculture as an illustration to talk about our symbiotic relationship with him. He says, um, you're the branches, I am the vine, abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can't bear any fruit. And remember, he says, you know, as the father is the, the master gardener, he will prune, prune back some branches that don't bear fruit. And when you hear the sharpening of the shears and you see it coming, you don't look forward to it, but afterwards, he says, it brings forth fruit and more abundantly. And so we learn from that that branches, they don't strive, they abide in the vine. And so we, we are so dependent on, on our connection uh, with Jesus. And we learn that, um, that valuable lesson from verses one through six. But now he's, he's, he kinda, he's taking that thought and he's kind of expanding on it. And he's still using this idea of abiding. He said, abide in me and I, and I in you, and my words abide in you, and you'll ask and it'll be done, and my Father is glorified this way. Therefore you can bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples, lifelong learners, dependent on Jesus. As the Father has loved me, even so have I loved you. Continue in my love. As my Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Think about that. In the same, with the same intense, infinite, unconditional, agape love that God, was, God the Father was giving to the Son, he says, with that same love, he's giving to us. Let that marinate a little bit. As I have been loved by the Father, so have I loved you continue in this style, this God-sized love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And you'll see that these commandments are connected, even though it's plural, it's, it's really centered on one concept. Love God and love your neighbor. That's how it's plural. Verse 11, 
And we'll expand on that because this is Jesus. He's already, he's already said that in chapter 13, and he's going to say it again here. He said, by the way, this is the, these are the commandments. He defines this. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for his friends. I talked about this in Sunday school, but think with me if you would. Sorry if this is scratchy. Think with me if you would. You know, there's, certain, there's people in here that have served our country, and I commend you for that. I come from a long line of people that have served in the military. Some people that have served in the military have done the ultimate sacrifice, have given their life. Sometimes in the military, there's an act of valor to where someone would jump on a grenade so that their fellow uh, soldiers or comrades can live. They'll take the hit. They'll take the bullet. And what Jesus is saying is the pinnacle, the apex of human-to-human love. At the very top of this, there's no greater love than someone would lay down their life for his friends. Jesus is saying that's the height of human, that's the height of a human display of love. And that's rare. We read that from Romans 5. For a good person, hardly anyone would do this. But what, what Jesus is about to say later on is that he doesn't just die for his friends, he dies for his enemies. He dies for sinners. And that's higher than human love. This is divine love. This is love that not only goes the second mile, it goes to infinity and beyond. So let's pray, and then we'll look at some thoughts from these few verses, from uh, verses 7 to 14. Dear Jesus, I pray that you'd minister to hearts, pull back the curtain, so to speak, reveal your truth, comfort those that need comfort, aid those that need to be aided, give grace, give mercy, give compassion, and may your spirit just illuminate and, and just overwhelm us with your presence and with your, with your love. Uh, and may we leave here just encouraged. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. So John 15, verses 7 and 8, abiding in the word, abiding in his word. Not striving, but abiding, abiding in his word. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Now, I just had a conversation with someone the other day about prayer. And I ended up quoting my aunt. And she always said this. And I wasn't a Christian when she said this, and I never quite got it. And now I kind of get it. And she was the only Christian in, in our family, uh, my side of the family, my wife's side of the family, they're all Christian. On mine, no one's Christian except my aunt. Now, now a few more have received Christ. But um, she'd always say this. If you pray and it comes to pass, amen, it was the best thing for you. If you pray and it does not come to pass, amen, it was the best thing for you. Like, okay, what kind of like, what kind of Yoda stuff are you speaking, you know? It makes a lot of sense to me now. Because God's delays are not always God's denials. God's delays are not always God's denials. 
You know, it says in James, he says, you have not because you ask not. And sometimes when you ask, you ask amiss so that you could heap it upon your lust. Do I fault God because I want a Ferrari and he doesn't give it to me? (laughs) Sometimes God's delays are not uh, always his denials, but sometimes his denials are because we're we're not even praying according to his will. And so the prayer is the mindset and the lifestyle that's yielded and dependent on the Father and lives by this motto, the same motto that Jesus lived by, not my will, but thy will be done. Remember Jesus in the garden, sweating drops of blood. He says he's praying and he's communing with God. He's like, there's any other way. If we could circumvent the cross, if I could just do some other way to save the people other than dying naked and humiliated and stabbed and spit on and plucked my beard and ribbons of bacon hanging off my back, sliding up and down an old rugged wooden cross. Is there any other way we could do this, Father? He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The anxiety, the the overwhelming, the psychological turmoil and the emotional distress to the point where physiologically Jesus was sweating drops of blood that's the kind of like turmoil he was going through for you and for me on our behalf and he deferred to the father and he said nevertheless not my will but your will be done I I'm usually live my life like not your will my will be done oh and when I get myself in trouble can you help me out (laughs) right anyone identify with that sort of approach so Jesus of course demonstrated, not my will, but thy will be done. And again, Paul said that too in Galatians 2.20. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, who wants to live his life with me and through me. That last part I added. Bearing fruit. So prayer in this verse, then bearing fruit. Again, from our time in John, the, verse, the verses before this, Bearing fruit is much different than producing fruit. Fruit comes from abiding, not striving. Look at these clusters of grapes. They're, they're just hanging out. I'm just grapes. Is it a rainy day? Cool. If they're, if they're around here, if they're in Temecula, right, where there's a bunch of wineries there, um, they're like, cool, it's a little cold. Why are you paying Southern California prices when it's this cold all of it? Okay, whatever, we'll hang out. They're not struggling, they're not striving, they're not complaining about the weather like I do, right? Because I'm all wimpy about this little, (laughs) ooh, we got a serious cold front, it's down in the 50s. (laughs) So, but fruit comes from trusting, not trying. Fruit is the outpouring of the life of Jesus living his fruitful life in and through us as we are in cooperation with his divine operation. When you squeeze grapes, grape juice. When you squeeze Christians with life, with circumstances, with trials and tribulations, Jesus juice. The life within is going to be the life that comes out, and we will get squeezed. So bearing fruit, it comes from trusting, it comes from yielding, it comes from abiding. So John uh, 15, 16, if if you had your Bibles open originally, just a couple verses where we stopped is verse 16, and he continues with this thought. He says, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. 
that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask him in the name of my father, uh, that he may give it to you. I like Proverbs 11.30. I forgot about this verse. It was a big deal when I, where I went to uh, seminary. It was a huge deal there. In fact, they kind of guilted you with this verse all the time. Uh, the fruit of the righteous of the tree of life, that he that winneth souls is wise. They even called it soul winning. And they even had a record of how many you had to do, and they had to keep track of it. I mean, they were really about this whole soul winning thing. I thought, like, what kind of empire are you building on the side here, bud? You know, <laughs> they're using all these college students to go win souls. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, we were out there sharing the gospel, and, but the fruit of the righteous of the tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. So you think about this, this concept of agriculture, fruit, life, health, everyone else benefits, other people profit by this. And to kind of expand on this sort of analogy, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, he says, I have planted, and what's he talking about? Sharing the gospel, looking for the fruit to, to uh, yield. He says, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that plants or anything, nor he that waters, but God that gives the increase. And so it is in this whole agricultural analogy, bless you, that God is the one where growth comes from. Everything is dependent uh, upon God. Now, do we feel a little unfruitful in our lives? Or is there, is there seasons where we might feel a little bit unfruitful? Yeah, I think that's kind of normal. Um, but let me ask this. When was the last time we saw an increase from our watering or our planting? God will give it, but it's almost like you have to participate in it, right? Some people plant, some people water. God gives the increase. What does that mean? I could be passive and be like a peacekeeper and just never, never say anything because I'm afraid, like, you know, conservative Christians are the number one target. You're a domestic terrorist. I just heard there's a pastor. I read this morning there's a pastor that got arrested at his house. Did you hear this? Because he protested this, this, uh, this transgender or it was a drag thing where they were doing it in the park for little kids. And he protested it, and they went to his house and they arrested him. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. But when was the last time that we saw an increase from our planting or watering? And I'm not talking about our protesting. I'm talking about you sharing the good news, the life-changing news of the gospel of the grace of God, that amazing grace that we sing about. When was the last time that we shared it? When was the last time that we saw the fruit where God would give the increase uh, from it? I'm not trying to guilt anyone. I'm just trying to just say, like, we participate in this thing. Yeah, we're not saved by good works, but those that are saved do do good works. We do do. Then this next point, the word. So he's talking about abiding in his word. As we already know, Jesus is the word that became flesh. We know that from John chapter 1. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God, and all things were made by him. There wasn't anything that was made that wasn't made by him. By him, all things came into, into being. By him, all things consist. 
It was by the word that everything that we see came from a place where we don't see. So it is by the word where God said, let there be, and there was. So the place where he's speaking from is the place that, that's always existed, but the place that's always existed spoke to, into existence the things that we see. And so it's by, it's by this word, this powerful word, and by the hearing of it that people are saved. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You hear it, you receive it, you believe it. So this word is eternal. It's, it's called the incorruptible seed that brings forth this everlasting life to any and all that would receive it. And I'm not trying to be gross, but in the Bible, the word seed is the Greek word spermos. You could do the math. <laughs> but you get the idea. It has the, it has the connection of life. From a seed springs forth life. And there's been a battle of two seeds from the Garden of Eden. Remember, God said when Adam and Eve sinned, and he, he brought Adam and Eve together, and he brought the serpent together, the devil, the dragon, the liar, the father of lives, the fallen angel, he brought them together, and he said, through your seed, speaking to Mary, implication, the virgin birth, you're going to crush his head. Through your seed to the serpent, you're going to bruise his heel. One's a death blow, the other one's just like a little minor infraction. But he says, you will be at enmity. So there's been a battle of two seeds from the beginning. And it's interesting that you see that play out from Genesis to Revelation. There's this unfolding of the seed of the serpent, the darkness, and you can call it whatever you will. He transforms himself as an angel of light, so it's kind of hard to you know, track his whereabouts. But him and his minions have always tried to distort and to corrupt the incorruptible seed of the gospel of God. So there's been this battle of two seeds going on. I'm going to illustrate it from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 puts it this way. We, believers, were born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the living word of God and abiding forever. Pause. What does it mean to be born again? John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He didn't want his Jewish uh, buddies to see that he was really interested in what Jesus had to say. He wanted to, he wanted to keep his religious you know, persona going, and he didn't want to go with these, kind of these, these right-wing wackos that were following Jesus as the Messiah. So he comes to Jesus at night, and he's like, I know you're a teacher from God and all this. And Jesus gives him this story, and he says, Nicodemus... That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. He said, the wind blows where it will, this blows, you know. He says, so it is, whoever was born of the Spirit. So he said, you must be born again. Nicodemus thinking spe specifically physical, he said, how could I be born again, being, you know, old and how could I enter a second time in my mother's womb? And he said, marvel not that you must be born again. So being born again means you hear the gospel, you receive it by faith, and you're born again. You get a new heart. Ezekiel puts it this way. He's going to pull out your old stony heart, 
which is a picture of death, and he said, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. And this is stepping out of Adam's race that's corruptible and stepping into Jesus, the last Adam, which is incorruptible. It's eternal. So he says, having been born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed through the living word of God and abiding forever for all fleshes as grass and the glory of men and women as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls out, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word preached as the gospel to you. So that incorruptible seed is the word of God. And we know the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It's hard to like to to transition the, the word the word I'm saying words you can't see them or touch them and then in 1 John he says we saw the word we handled the word and John that's writing it was the one that laid on Jesus and he said is it, I'm going to betray you and they're talking about who's going to betray him and it was talking about Judas and he's is it I is it I and he said I touched him I handled him we handled and saw the word of life and that word that became flesh and dwelt amongst us, when you receive it, goes into your heart, takes out, he does this sort of metamorphosis to where he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And it's all done by this germination of, this, of the word that sinks in. And there's, there's some here that maybe have been hearing the word but haven't received the word, but when the word, the seed, the incorruptible seed takes root and is watered and God plants it and it gives an increase and there's a new eternal creation uh, about to form from this point and forever moving forward. And that's good news. This seed, which is the word, is this life-giving source that Jesus spoke about in his parables in Matthew 13. If you, I, I remember things in the Bible... Um, just by subjects. Matthew 13 to me is the parable chapter. To me. And it is. It's all about parables. He's got the parables of, you know, the lost coin, uh, the leaven, um, the lost sheep. But he also has the parable connected to what I want to talk about is the sower of the good seed and the bad seed, the four soils, the wheats and the tares, the mustard seed. So he has this seed thing going on. Jesus really liked what is it, horticulture, agriculture? <laughs> really, I mean, he made it all, but um, he's speaking to an audience that would understand what he's talking about. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. If you, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. There should be one in the pew in front of you, or if you have it on your phone. Um, I use Blue Letter Bible. It's free. There's a lot of free apps um, uh, for your phone. But if you don't have a Bible at all, I'll just read it out loud. Normally, all the verses are on the screen, uh, but some of the bigger ones, I have people turn and find it. So Matthew chapter 13, in this parable chapter, Jesus had just given them um, the parable, and a parable is really just kind of like a, um, using an earthly example of a heavenly truth. And so he's giving them um, a principle in heaven so they could understand it on earth. And so he, he uses agriculture so he could explain what's really going on spiritually. It's not about agriculture. So don't get hung up on that. And so they ask him, they say, well, what does this mean, Jesus? And so then he defines what he meant. 
And he says in Matthew 13, 18, here's the, here's the explanation of his parable. He says, well, here then is the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which has been sown in his heart. So in other words, people heard it, and they're like, oh, okay. And then all of a sudden, the evil, they didn't really understand it, they didn't really comprehend it, and they didn't really kind of uh, like uh, take ownership of it. And so then the, the Bible says, the, so the evil forces come and just take it away. This is what's just sown amongst the path. He's talking about the four soils where the seed was planted. Verse 20, he says, and for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is a different type of soil, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They're stoked, they're excited. This is, this is the best thing since canned beer and sliced bread and hot yoga. This is the greatest thing they've ever heard. This, verse 21, yet they don't have much root and they endure for a little while. Then when tribulation or persecution or rough times come, on account of the word, in other words, oh, there, there's a little bit of cost. That, that it's free to you, but it might cost you some things as a Christian. And when those, those things come along and, oh, you're a, you're a Christian or you believe in Jesus, you're an idiot or you, you know, can't you think for yourselves? And that's old, that's antiquated. We've got aliens, we've got UFOs, we've got better things than God. So on account of whatever it is, that they, they say they immediately they fall away. Verse 22, and that which is sown among the thorns, it's the third type of soil. This one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So there's, four there's three soils, three are bad, and there's three sort of responses to the receiving of the seed, the word, this incorruptible seed. And then there's a fourth one. As for that which is sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, and then bears fruit, and it starts yielding an increase. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. And so Jesus has to explain to his disciples, it's only like 25% of the people are really going to receive this thing and go with it. <laughs> you have a 75% unsuccessful rate and sharing the seed, and sharing the seed, and sharing the seed, right? And you just got to be okay with that. Because, you know, God, don't, don't, like I said in Sunday school, don't despise little things. God's always been in little things. Harvard versus Ashbury. One is like, you have to, you, you have to deny your faith, which was once the, it was the first university in America. You had to be a Christian to get in it. And now it's almost like you have to deny Christianity to get in and have a rich dad and good SATs. And then there's a little, that little school in Kentucky where they're like, no one knows about it. I only have one stoplight in the town. No one cares about that. You're not going to get in. You're not going to get a good job from going to this college. Why do you even go to that little faith-based college? Which is, the first hundred universities in America were Christian. They're not that way anymore. But this one, still Christian. And then revival breaks out. And they're singing 24 hours a day. Can you, you, Joe, your calluses, you would have carpal tunnel. Becky, you'd have laryngitis. We'd have to rotate singers. I mean, they were singing nonstop, 24 hours, 24 hours. It made Fox News. It made uh, OEN News. It made Newsmax. It's canceled news by AT&T. It made all the news cycles, and all the conservative sites were reporting it, and then people from all over the world were going there. 
all over the country, and the mainstream media was not reporting it, and they're worried about Harvard, which used to be Christian that's not, and this big Ivy League school that costs thousands of dollars to get into that's elite, that was originally for pastors so they could be literate, so they could go share the gospel to the community, has now become this something other. And this little obscure school is like, we love Jesus. We're not famous. Come to find out, I talked to a pastor friend of mine who is aware of that, and he's much older than me. He said, Neil, I was there in the 70s during the Jesus movement, and another revival broke out then, and he says, I was there for that. He said, yeah, it's, they're not unfamiliar with, with big things happening in the little communities. A little tiny community. Don't despise little things. God could do big things through a little church or a little individual or a little someone like me or a little someone like you. He can't. You serve a big God. Look, when David goes up to a giant, David wasn't looking at the size of this dude. He's like... Hey, giant, you've got a small God. I've got a big God, meaning you've got big problems, bud. <laughs> and it wasn't David. My wife and I were just talking about it. wasn't David killing the giant. It was David's big God that killed this little giant. Because to David, the giant looked small because in, in relation, he, David was serving a big God. So it wasn't like his slanging ability. I'm just going to slang me some rocks. I'm going to bust some but some rock caps. He was, <laughs> it was his faith and his big God. So on this whole concept of the seed, look at, in the same chapter, this parable chapter, Matthew 13, this one will be on the screen, verse uh, 37. Now that he's, he moved from the four different soils, now he's moving to two types of crops that come up, wheats and weeds. Not dispensary type weeds like Weeds that are bad, that choke out the good stuff. Verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Do you see the battle of the two seeds? Once you see this from Genesis 3, right from the beginning, you'll see it play out. Cain and Abel. Genesis, the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4. Cain was saved by grace. Abel thought you're saved by works. I mean, Cain thought he was saved by works. Abel was saved by grace. Abel offered a lamb, which is a picture of Jesus, and then Cain offered his good works by the sweat of his brow. And he said, see what I've done for you? And then his brother just offered what God had taught Adam and Eve, and then he, he, they transferred it to his son. It was this grace offering, this this innocent for the guilty offering. Cain didn't get it, and he had good intentions, but it, his, he thought he was going to come to God on his own terms and by his own works and by his own religious efforts, and he was so pissed off that he killed his brother. And so you see the battle of the seeds. It's been going on since the beginning. It's just going to continue. And we might be the minority, but that's okay, because with God, we're a majority. So he answered, and he said, this is a good seed, the, the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, bad seed, corruptible seed. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. I love angel stuff. It's good ones, bad ones. 
I love it. Bad ones are outnumbered, by the way, two to one. Yeah, they're not really a match. Don't give them more credit than they need. Verse 40, babe. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Now, go to this next slide. You've, you've heard this verse from Luke. It's also in Matthew as well. Looked out on the field, and he's talking about people. Not agriculture, but people. And Jesus wept. He wept when he saw the people. He said they're like sheep that have no shepherd. You know, he used that analogy. Not that people are sheep. But he looked out at, the, at all the people. He said the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers and the workers are few. Pray that the Lord of, Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into his field. And this is kind of a, a reality here. So the laborers, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So once the seed of the, of the word is planted in the hearts and grows, and as we abide in him and he in us, uh, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. And the word let is a powerful participatory, participatory word in the Bible. We are encouraged to let this mind be in you, which is also in Jesus. And we're encouraged to let this word be in us and let this word dwell in us and let this life uh, live in us and through us. Uh, I think about if you, were, if you were an operator at a dam and you were to increase the water flow, let the water out. You just let it out. You, you just turn the... And in your mind as a Christian, you just let it go. You, you have, you, it's a catch and release. You caught this... Now, release it, let it out, let it out. We're not Jesus hoarders, you know. We got his life to give his life. Let it flow, let it flow. So look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. In other words, we let it, we let it in to let it out. And look at this in Colossians 3, 16. There's a lot of good 3, 16 verses, incidentally. I don't know what's up with that, but there is. This is one of them. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing. Remember, this is this incorruptible seed that caused you to be born again. And he's saying, let this dwell in you richly. Let it be fruitful. Let it benefit others around you. Let it out. You let it in by faith. Let it out by faith. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you guys did a great job this morning because we, we sang hymns. We they're spiritual songs. They're psalms. We sang a psalm today in the garden, right? That, so there was psalms, there was hymns, there's spiritual songs. You know, when we're handshaking time, the sound booth plays a lot of spiritual songs, a lot of contemporary stuff. And it's all good. And so he wants that. But there's some, however, that do not have the seed or the word in them. Look at Jesus. In John 5 and John 8, Jesus is having like a, a toe-to-toe confrontation with the religious elite. The, those that, you know, were the, they were the hardcore religious people of his day. You might say the fundamentalist Jews. And he said to them, he just healed someone, and they're having a debate with him, like, how dare you make someone's life better, Jesus? 
And he said, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe on him whom he has sent. Search the scriptures. His reference to them would have been the Old Testament because that's all they had. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Jesus said, you're in the Bible, but the Bible's not in you. You're in the word of God, but the word of God is not in you. You think just by studying and reading and becoming academic and morally right and all that sort of self-righteousness makes you acceptable, but it doesn't. Because if you don't have, you could be in the word, but if the word is not abiding in you, you don't have eternal life. And that's what he's trying to say. Even to, even to these guys. And he, he says it again in another showdown. Remember in John 8, it opens up with the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then he turns to these and says, which one of you is without sin? Let him cast the first stone. And they're like, to be honest. (laughs) And it started from the oldest to the youngest. For those of you that are old, you've been around a while, you're like, yeah, yeah, I've I've tried. I know me. I know me. (laughs) Right? And so, and then he has this whole discussion with them because they thought they were geographically uh, superior because they thought they were religiously superior and they're rejecting the, the very Messiah that came to them. He said he came into his own, his own received him not. Another will come in his own name and him you will receive, referring to the Antichrist. But he said he, he came into his own and his own rejected him. And he says in John 8, verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's seed. There's the word seed again. Because they thought just because they were born that way that they're an automatic shoe-in. It's just like, okay, so in America it says in God we trust, but does it all, do all Americans trust God in our, just because it says it on our money? You know, it says that we're created by our creator in our founding documents. Does that, does that mean everyone believes that? No. So just because you're an American, you're born in America, does that mean you're a Christian? No. You need to be born again to become a Christian. Just because you're born in Israel doesn't mean you're automatically going to heaven just because you're a Jew. That doesn't mean that. You're saved by grace through faith the same way everyone else is. So Jesus is pointing that out. He says, you, you, seek, to see, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. So some people could be in the word, but they must have the word in them in order to have a relationship with God. Now, look... Go to the next slide. I think it's the first John slide. Look, look at this verse. So it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's someone that would be sitting here saying, I'm not a sinner. I'm good enough for God's heaven. Well, you're deceiving yourself because the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. And then he said, if you hold that view, and in, in context to John, when he's writing to these group of believers, there was Gnostics in that, in that uh, uh, ecclesia, that gathering of believers, and they held that view that, that they, they weren't sinful. So he's, he's trying to tell them, well, then the truth is not in you. Well, who's the truth? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He gives them an opportunity, though. He said, if we confess our sins, if you agree with God, because he's already said it, all have sinned, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to forgive your sins, my sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you would agree with God, yeah, I'm not perfect. I've messed up. It only takes one mess up to ruin the whole thing. He said, yeah, if you would just agree with God, he would give you this free gift, 
full, a full pardon, a full cleansing. But if we say that we have not sinned, again, if you don't, if you don't believe that, if you think you're, you're good enough for God's heaven and you're going to get there on your own, kind of like a Cain approach, I guess, you make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us, it's not in you. So again, abiding in the word, there's some people that have the word in them and there's some people that don't. And those that don't, don't agree that they're sinners. They don't, they don't have the truth in them. They, they haven't been forgiven of all of their unrighteousness because they're not of the seed, of, they're not of the, born again of the uncorruptible seed. Okay, moving along. Hopefully you got some, some things from that little section. Let, next section, I'm going to go a little bit faster. Abiding in his love. So from the verses that we started with in John 15, I'm going to pull out two and just kind of make this point about abiding in his love. So that first section was abiding in his word and the word abiding in you. And now we're talking about abiding in his love. So in John 15, where we started, he says, as the father has loved me, even so have I loved you, continue abiding in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So for those who have uh, the God of the word in them and the word of God in them, they have the ability to bear fruit of his abiding abundant life through them now that they have the resource to love with a God-sized love. So in other words, abiding in God's love and loving others the way that God has loved us, it's going to take batteries. You're going to need the batteries included. You're going to need the resource. You're going to need the ability. You're going to need, you're going to, need to outsource this to insource it to outsource it again. So it has to come without to be within, to give it out. So in other words, it's back to catch and release. I can't love people the way God loves if I don't have the God of all love in me doing it through me. I just don't have it in me. This is not the eros love, which is the Greek word for erotic love, like how you'd love your husband or wife. And I'm like, easy, babe, quit. Enough of the eros love, all right? Enough. Too much eros love in my house. They're like, okay, let's slow down on that. Then there's the brotherly love, the, the phileo, where we get Philadelphia, right? That's kind of like your teammates, your coworkers, your colleagues, your neighbors, that type of thing, your, your everyday love. And we need more of that. But then there's the agape love, which is this God-sized, God-style love, which is to love without any expectation of anything in return. It's the unconditional one-way love. It's the love that we're, we're not familiar with because it's eternal. It's a love that has no becauses. God doesn't love because you went to church, because you're American, because you're male, because you're female, because you're white, because you're black, because you're brown, because you're from the Middle East, because you know the Greek and the Hebrew, because you went to Bible college, because you did a missions trip, because you kept your marriage together, because you kept some promises. He loves you without any becauses. There's no because. Because you can't originate this. You can't prompt this love. God will love because he is love. If there is a because, it's because that's who he is. Does that make sense? Or do you think I'm doing like some sort of semantical gymnastics thing? I didn't mean to make it come out that way. I always end up sounding like Dr. Seuss in some way or the other. I don't do it intentionally.
Hang on. Well, I'll, talk to, I'll answer all your questions here in a little bit. I'm almost done. But think about it. How the Father has loved Jesus. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now think about, well, it's hard to think about because it takes, it takes an eternal perspective. But Jesus was in the infinite construct or the, the, the domain, and it, and it has no bounds. It's limitless because he, he's from eternity, but he has no beginning, has no end. He's the uncreated creator. But in, his, in the, the place where Jesus comes from is a place of infinite love. There, there's no becauses there. He's just in a system of infinite, eternal, unmerited, unmatched love. This is so foreign to me. I wasn't loved like that by my dad. You probably weren't loved like that. I wasn't loved like that by anyone. I mean, people have done their best in my life. I'm thankful for that. But if you think about the father to the son in that relationship of perfect, unadulterated, um, no GMOs, no additives, no preservatives, no because is love. When I'm talking, I can't even explain it with words because they fall short. But Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, I want to give that love to you. And we just, we just like recomputing, we're like, we're like chat, chat GPTs that just can't <laughs> recomputing. We just don't get it. And that's okay because he wants us to not only to receive this love by faith, but to also to grow in this love. Look, let me just say this. Put this quote on the screen. God is, God's love is not concerned with what he can get. His love is concerned with what he can give. And that lets you know that he's not codependent, he's not insecure, and he's not using you, utilitarian-wise, to get something from you. He's just loving you because he wants to give you love without anything in return. Now, if that, if that kind of love causes you to be like, oh, cool, thanks, and you want to like, just give your big middle finger to God and, and you don't care about God or the things of God, you just want to be like entitled, let's just say, you know, like, I'm entitled to this, I'm just going to receive it, and I'm going to, okay, fine, if that's your interpretation of that. But most of the time, that kind of love when you really get that kind of love, it causes you to respond in appreciation and gratitude. When you receive a love that you never, 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 never deserved, it causes you to respond with an attitude of gratitude. I have another couple quotes and I'll be done. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. You've heard it phrased modernly or contemporarily. If you were the last person on earth, Jesus would have died for you, right? You've probably heard that. But I like this ancient take on that. God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. And if you're honest, you're probably sitting there saying, there's nothing really special about me to love anyways. And the more you get to know me, the less you probably want to love me. <laughs> you know, That's the way I feel about me. I don't know if you feel that about you, but God knows all your dirty laundry. He knows all the skeletons in your closet, all the stuff we try to hide from other people. He knows it, and in spite of all that, he said, yes, while you're yet sinners, I'm going to die for you. Not for good people, for bad people. Not for people that deserve it, for people that don't deserve it. For enemies, 
And he wants to make peace. And he wants to be reconciled with those that are just with fists in the air because we were, we've been deceived by the, by the bad seed. And he wants us to step out of darkness and into light. So this is a love that propels us to do more, not less. This is a love that goes the extra mile and then some. This is a love for others and causes us to be fearless because the hand of God never deals but in concert with his infinite love toward us. So I'm almost done here. This love that eternally abides in us wants to flow through us and from us. We read this in Sunday school, actually, but look at the next screen, Romans 5, 5. A hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given unto us. How do you get the Holy Spirit? By faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've fallen short. I can't save myself. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you are buried. I believe you rose again. Will you come into my heart? And he said, boom, he will. And he'll pour out his, his, this unconditional, infinite love that, you, that we're so unfamiliar with. He'll put it in your heart as a resource. You're not getting more of it, but you'll, as you grow in Christ, you'll start to understand more about the love that you received. He doesn't love you anymore. He loves everyone the same. He's an equal opportunity savior. So the Old Testament laws, if I could put it this way, almost done. The Old Testament laws may be complex, but the New Testament law is not complicated. It's simply wrapped up in one word. Let's not make it complicated. Look at, go to the next slide. One word. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this. And he doesn't even use one word. <laughs> he uses a bunch of words. <laughs> you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but you get the, what the one word is. It's love. Why? Because love is the fulfilling of the law. It's the fulfilling of the law. John 13, 34. I give you a new commandment, Jesus says. Not Moses 2.0, not what, not, what not what civil government does, not what the legislative branch of government does, uh, where they keep adding and adding and adding and adding and adding, and so it's so convoluted and big you can't understand it. But Jesus said, I'm reducing everything down to one word, a new commandment. You love one another as I have loved you. Oh, okay, now he's saying, okay, here's the catch. When you do love others, it's the same way that I loved you. So if we're going to love others the way God wants us to, then we've got to understand, well, how does Jesus love us? And with the same love I received is the same love that I release. So some of us need to kind of marinate and soak on that and, and sit on that and say a lot of that for a little bit. Well, how does Jesus love me? And it's okay to wrestle with this because this is a big, big, big deal in the Bible. It's okay to take some time out and to say, like, I don't really know, Jesus. Do you love me? I don't even love me. I come from a place of no one really loving me, and I don't even love myself. How could you love me? And wrestle with God on that. That's okay. He, he's, got, he's got all the time. He wants, he wants you to know him and his love. And he says, by this shall all people know that you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. And I want to commend this church. This church is really showing that to one another. Loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, helping one another, praying for one another. And I really admire that in the church because it's, it's making Jesus visible. John 15, 12 puts it this way. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
So you kind of get the, the new deal that Jesus is uh, introducing to the, to the church and the world. Do you know the old saying, we don't have a religion, but we have a relationship? You've heard that before? Well, it's also been said that Christianity is a love affair with an unlosable lover. Christianity is a love affair with an unlosable lover. So this is a true and a faithful saying, but do we believe it? Do we understand it? Do we, have we received it? Why this is such an important thing to comprehend for us as Christians is because it kind of it changes everything. And what I mean by that is because we never behave beyond what we believe, if we think incorrectly about God and his love towards us, then we'll behave incorrectly to others relationally around us. I notice this in counseling a lot. I typically meet with uh, Christians in a clinical setting, and not all the time, but the Christian uh, clients that I meet with, all their horizontal relationships that are usually presenting problems can sometimes come back to their vertical relationship with God. Because I've found a lot of times that we'll treat others this way, the way we feel like God's treating us this way. So, if my dad has given me a weird view of God, you know, and I project on God the way my father has, has dealt with me, and then I'll treat others the way I feel like God's treating me. Like if I have to get, I have to do a dance and a song and get God to love me and be impressed with me and like, even to like me and to want to spend time with me. If I always got to like to do, to jump through all these hoops to, you know, are you impressed with me now? Do you see me now, God? If I have to do all that weird stuff just to get God's attention, how do you think I'm going to treat others if that's my number one relationship? And that's the one I think about the most. So we'll often treat others the way we feel like God's treating us. So if we get a correct relational view about God and me, maybe I could get good relationships going between me and you. Does that make sense? I'll close with this last quote. The only reason we could ever love, forgive, and accept others is because Christ has first loved, forgiven, and accepted us. It is true that we will treat others the way we feel like God is treating us. If we feel we have to perform for God and ask his forgiveness each time we sin, we expect the same performance from everyone else. If we believe God loves us only when we do the right things, then we tend to also love others only when they, too, do the right things. I don't know if that rings true with you, but I've quoted this a few times in church because for some reason it really resonates with me. If you're here and you've never received Christ or you have questions, just see me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you. Um, for those of you that have received Christ, just check your fruit. How's the fruit going? Be, be your own fruit inspector. You know, um, if you've ever driven outside of the state of California, come in, they, I don't know what, they just nod, like they just see you're, you're not a fruit carrier. But like, you know, just go right through the fruit inspection, the agriculture, you know. <laughs> But inspect your own fruit. Check out your own fruit. Let's do this. Let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we could gather in your name. Thank you for our country. 
Thank you for the freedoms that, that we enjoy because of those that have gone before us. And I thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege uh, to, uh, to hear your word, to know your word, and to make your word known. Help us to, to cast out seeds, this incorruptible seed of your word. And yes, it'll fall on various types of soil, but some plant and some water, but God gives the increase. Thank you that we could abide in your word. Thank you that we could abide in your love and not only receive your love, but release it to others because you've given us the batteries included to do it. I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. you may be dismissed.